Today's podcast is a very, very special episode because we'll be covering one of my favorite historical figures of all time, the famous Marcus Tullius Cicero, a Roman statesman, lawyer, orator, and philosopher. Let me state up front, I am a huge, huge Cicero fan, and all of my friends hate the way I go on about him every single day, a random person from 2,000 years ago, but I think I have some pretty good reasons to praise Cicero on a near-daily basis. Philosophy nerds all tip their hat to the ancient sages of philosophy like Plato and Aristotle, but Cicero is a much less frequently mentioned thinker. For libertarians and classical liberals, Cicero is not exactly a household name. The Romans are hardly considered liberal heroes either, with their love of imperialism and war. But I believe Cicero deserves a very, very honourable mention in the history of liberalism for his colossal influence that can be felt throughout the history of political thought. Unlike most ancient figures, much of Cicero's writings remain intact, including his philosophical works, speeches, and even personal letters. This leads us to having a much clearer picture of Cicero than most figures in Roman history, let alone ancient history writ large. Because of this, I have to warn you, this episode will not be a comprehensive account of Cicero's turbulent and long career. That would take a lot more than a crisp 20 minutes or so. I like to at least try to keep things nice and short. So I'll be doing my best to summarize, and instead of talking for Cicero about hours on end, I'll keep it nice and short. Cicero was born in 106 BC in a hill town named Arpinum, around 60 miles southeast of Rome. He was born into a very wealthy family, with his father being a member of the Equestrian Order, a class of wealthy property-owning citizens of Rome. He did not have a particularly noble lineage, but had the wealth to support an aristocratic lifestyle. Due to physical infirmities, Cicero's father could not pursue a career in politics and instead threw himself into studying to compensate for his lack of political prestige. Just a little bit about Cicero's name. Cicero's full name is Marcus Tullius Cicero. Cicero was what the Romans called a cognomen, the third name of a citizen, usually kind of like a nickname. Cicero, in fact, means chickpea. This sounds quite odd, but many Romans had quite humble cognomens. For example, Catullus, the famous general, Gaius Lucius Catullus. Catullus meant puppy. The name Chickpea might have originated with one of Cicero's ancestors having a cleft lip that looked like a chickpea, or his family may have made a good life for themselves, selling chickpeas. Regardless, his name isn't exactly awe-inspiring, and later in life when Cicero entered politics, many of your friends told him to drop the nickname. Instead, Cicero decided he would make the nickname the greatest name in Roman history. From a very young age, Chickpea strived not only for greatness, but to be the very best. Cicero was given the best education money could buy, conversing with the best orators, poets, historians, and philosophers from Rome. As a child, he dreamed of climbing to the top of Rome political society, being elected a consul, the highest office in Rome. So he began the process of climbing what was called the Cursus Honorum, the career path of Roman politician, beginning with military service. At the age of 17, Cicero began his military service during the Social War, a conflict between Rome and her former Italian allies, who wished to have more of a say in government. But Cicero was no soldier, and after two years of service, he left the military. Thankfully, Cicero avoided the subsequent civil wars between the two opposing factions led by Marius and Sulla. His experience with constant civil strife led Cicero early in life to see the value of peace, moderation, and harmony. It was a good thing he left the military. His talents lay in oratory, debate, and reasoning. Fighting was not his forte. He quickly realized that he would need an alternative path to glory, or should not lean so heavily on military glory. Through his studies, Cicero had become known as quite the formidable intellect, so much so that he attracted the attention of Quintus Musius Scavola, one of the foremost authorities of law in his day, who trained Cicero intensely. Under Scavola's tutelage, Cicero met Titus Pomponius, or, as he is later known, Atticus, after the area of Attica, where Athens is located. Atticus was given this name due to his love of philosophy, originating in Athens. Unlike Cicero, Atticus spent most of his life avoiding politics, preferring to stick to philosophy. But despite their differences, the pair became firm friends, discussing philosophy and staying in contact throughout their lives, despite the turbulence of wars, intrigue, and political jostling. Cicero would later come to think of Atticus as his second brother. 
Later in life, Cicero would write a book entitled Treatises on Friendship, which he dedicated, of course, to his good friend Atticus. In this work, Cicero wrote that friendship improves happiness and abates misery by doubling of our joy and dividing of our grief. Through Cicero's personal letters, we can observe one of history's most endearing friendships. Okay, enough gushing over their bromance. Back to Cicero. Cicero began his career in earnest as a lawyer sometime around 83 or 81 BC. His first high-profile case was the defense of a man named Sextius Roscus, who was accused of patricide, killing of one's father, a grave crime in Rome, an extremely patriarchal society. The supposed ancient punishment for patricide was to be stripped naked, beaten to a pulp, and then sewn into a leather sack containing a dog, a cock, a monkey, and a snake. I have no clue how all of these fit into a single sack, but regardless, you kind of get the point. This is an extremely controversial case to take on, especially so early in one's career. Even more so, because the man Cicero was defending was an enemy of Sulla, then the de facto dictator of Rome. It was a controversial topic, and it meant opposing people in high places. Such a case could make or break Cicero's career. But through masterful oratory, Cicero prevailed and successfully defended Sextus, bringing him a great deal of fame and renown at the tender age of 26. After this controversial case, Cicero decided to travel to Greece, possibly to avoid any reprisals from Sulla, but also because of his love of philosophy. While in Greece, Cicero learned a huge amount about oratory, philosophy, and debate. Most importantly here, Cicero honed his sense of speaking style, which became his greatest asset throughout his life. Not belonging to an especially noble family with a great and long lineage, Cicero would be considered an outsider in Roman politics. By 75 BC, Cicero was elected to the office of Quaestor. He was one of the 20 officials that oversaw the finances of the Roman government. While in office, Cicero was in charge of the jurisdiction of Sicily. He earned a reputation as an honest man with a great deal of integrity, something quite rare at a time when the character of political life had become increasingly cynical and self-serving. A perfect example of this cynicism was Gaius Verius, who was a magistrate who had gained his position through bribery and while in office abused his power, enriching himself at the expense of Sicilians he was supposed to be diligently serving. Because of his high standing amongst the Sicilians, Cicero was asked to help prosecute Verius for his abuse of power. Enriched at the expense of others, Verius bought the best legal team that money could buy, which included Quintus Hortensius, who was at the time considered the best lawyer and orator in Rome. Yet again, the odds were stacked against Cicero. He prepared diligently, writing several speeches covering every possible issue. And when the day finally came, Cicero gave his opening speech, which completely demolished any shred of credibility Varys had. The damage was so bad that according to Cicero's later writings, Hortensius did not even give a speech in reply, and instead advised Varys that he should go into voluntary exile to avoid prosecution. Nine days after Cicero's first speech, Varys left for Massalia, located today in France, where he lived for the rest of his days, never to return to Rome. Cicero's complete and unambiguous defeat of Verres made him to the leading orator of Rome, completely eclipsing the former prodigy Hortensius. Since Cicero had only gotten to deliver one of his many speeches, he decided to publish the rest to further cement his glory. By now, Cicero was called a novus homo, or a new man, meaning he was the first member of his family to serve in the Senate. In a world where familial connections dominated politics, Cicero was at a distinct disadvantage as his familial connections lacked any prestige, even though his family was wealthy. A new man entering the Senate was an extremely rare occurrence. Cicero was in fact the first in almost 30 years. At this point in history, Rome had been a republic since 509 BC after the overthrow of the last monarch of Rome, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus. Evolving over time, the Roman government came to have elected representatives, a separation of powers, a commitment to the rule of law, and a complex system of checks and balances in an attempt to ward off tyranny. When the founding fathers of America began thinking how to establish their own republic in the 18th century, they were keenly aware of the example of Rome. And it is no coincidence that the American system in many ways is inspired by the Romans' example. Checks and balances, separation of powers. 
Sounds pretty familiar. Importantly, Cicero believed all political power received its legitimacy from the people. Throughout his career, Cicero took the stance of a constitutionalist, preferring to protect the traditional liberty of her own people. He dedicated himself to fighting against the demagogues of his day, while also attempting to preserve the Roman constitutional system, which he believed was the key to the Roman people's lasting liberty. To be frank, Cicero idealised the past for sure. It is hard to say exactly how great the so-called glory days of Roman Republic actually were, but what is clear is that Cicero wanted a system committed to the rule of law and limits on power to protect the property and rights of Roman citizens. By Cicero's day, the Republican system was waning and was beginning to crumble under intense political pressure due to the colossal size of the Roman Empire. Republican government made less and less sense in a state that no longer just ruled Italy, but the entire Mediterranean. By 63 BC, Cicero was elected as one of the two consuls of Rome, an extremely prestigious and powerful position at the top of the Roman political ladder. The main highlight of Cicero's time in office was dealing with the Catalanarian conspiracy. Lucius Sergius Catiline was a Roman aristocrat whose wealth had begun to decline rapidly. Worse yet, he ran against Cicero for office, taking out loans and hoping to repay them using the wealth in his newfound position. But Cicero won, and Catiline went deeply into debt. In debt and defeated, his political ambitions, Catiline had little to lose, and so along with a few other disgruntled senators, he began plotting a plan to overthrow the Roman government and implement his own plan of debt cancellation and a redistribution of land, two policies Cicero had vigorously opposed throughout his career. Cicero found out about Catiline's plan to murder him and other senators. After presenting his evidence to his fellow senators and delivering a convincing set of speeches on Catiline's guilt, martial law was declared, giving Cicero absolute power to deal with the issue as he saw fit. The leading conspirators were rounded up and were executed without any form of trial. Cicero convinced his fellow senators of the necessity of executing conspirators immediately, despite the opposition of senators including the famous Julius Caesar. With the conspirators dead, Cicero was celebrated as a hero and was given the honorific title Pater Patriae, Father of the Fatherland. This was the peak of Cicero's career, and from here on out, almost inevitably, it took a downward trajectory. Despite his actions and widespread popularity, Cicero felt quite uneasy about executing citizens without trial, even in extreme circumstances. He worried that in the future, his actions might have consequences. This is exactly what happened four years later, when an enemy of Cicero named Publius Claudius Pulcher proposed a new law that would exile anyone who executed a citizen without a trial. The law was obviously aimed at Cicero, whom Claudius despised, since Cicero had assiduously attacked his character in a court case. When Cicero saw the political tides were turning, he accepted his fate and went into exile in Greece. While he was exiled, Claudius passed yet another bill that robbed Cicero of his properties, which were desecrated into face beyond repair by Claudius and his supporters. Cicero was in a state of abject misery during which he even contemplated suicide, writing to his dear friend Atticus who consoled him throughout his exile. But after a year in exile, Cicero returned to Italy, and in a testament to Cicero's popularity, he was welcomed by cheering crowds. Upon his return to Rome, he restored his status and rejoined political life. But this was by no means a peaceful period in Roman history. Three powerful men had become the de facto leaders of Roman life, Julius Caesar, Pompey Magnus, and Marcus Crassus. Together, these three formed the first triumvirate, an alliance under which the members vowed to stay of each other's way while pursuing their own goals and increasing their individual power and influence over Rome. But when one of the members of the triumvirate, Crassus, died in 53 BC while invading the Parthian Empire, Julius and Pompey Magnus eventually came into conflict by the third to balance them out. Julius Caesar was a prominent member of the Popularis faction, a group of Roman politicians who supported the redistribution of land and wished to see the Senate's authority diminished. Caesar, while serving as a governor, invaded Gaul and Britannia without consent from the Senate. His campaigns were completely illegal, but were massive successes, with him defeating his enemies and capturing colossal masses of wealth and slaves. 
Once Caesar returned to Rome and was out of office, he would lose his immunity and be prosecuted by the Senate for starting a war without their consent. The Senate commanded Caesar to disband his army and return to Rome, but fearing prosecution at the hands of the Senate for his crimes, Caesar famously crossed the Rubicon River. Refusing to back down, he marched on Rome with a loyal army of veterans behind him. Completely flabbergasted and unprepared for Caesar, the Senate floundered. Those loyal to the Republic fled Italy along with Pompey, their new commander-in-chief. Caesar had committed all kinds of atrocities among the tribes of Gaul. Senators feared he would be just as bloodthirsty in a battle against fellow Romans. Cicero followed Pompey, leaving Rome to raise an army to oppose Caesar. But during this four years of civil war, Cicero's role was quite limited. He constantly argued with the army's commanders. He began to lose faith as the people in charge seemed more interested in their personal glory rather than restoring his beloved republic. Cicero believed his side was fighting for the right cause, but he had no stomach for the war, which was quickly becoming a bloodbath. There had been civil wars before, but the magnitude of this war was shocking. Eventually, Julius Caesar defeated Pompey at the Battle of Pharsalus in 48 BC, and with few options left, Cicero and many others surrendered. To the surprise of many, as part of his general policy of clemency, Caesar generously pardoned many of his enemies and allowed them to return to Rome. Men such as the famously stubborn Cato the Younger continued the war for a time, but were eventually defeated, leading to Caesar appointing himself dictator of Rome for a period of ten years. This not being enough, by 44 BC, Caesar established himself as dictator in perpetuity. Rome was now no longer a republic. Under the dictatorship of Caesar, Cicero had no real role in politics for the first time in decades. Distraught, Cicero turned to writing philosophy in an attempt to occupy himself. If there is one good thing to come from Julius Caesar, it is that it gave time for Cicero to write down his thoughts on how the state ought to be, a gift to later generations. But Caesar could not stay in power forever. A conspiracy was hatched between senators who brutally stabbed Caesar to death. Though Cicero had not been involved in the conspiracy, he did not oppose Caesar's assassination. But with Caesar dead, his former right-hand man, Mark Antony, rose to power, and for a time, Cicero and Mark Antony were the two leading figures in Rome. Cicero refused to hide his disdain from Mark Antony, who was an unabashed populist, formally aligning himself with Cicero's arch-rival Clodius. Cicero saw Mark Antony as a new dictatorial threat to the delicately re-established Republic. At this time, Cicero held a large degree of popular support as a moderating figure, attempting to establish harmony to maintain the delicate balance. But then, Caesar's adoptive heir Octavian entered the fray, we now know Octavian as Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. Cicero delivered a set of devastating speeches named the Philippics, where he brutally attacked Mark Antony and urged the Senate to label him as an enemy of the state. And though he gained a large amount of support from the Senate, Augustus, Mark Antony, and another powerful figure named Letipus cemented a new alliance forming the Second Triumvirate. Immediately, they set out their plan in motion and published a list of their enemies who were to be executed. Cicero, for his republican values and his opposition to Antony, was included in the list of those doomed to die. Deeply offended by Cicero's damning speeches, it is no surprise that Mark Antony had him on the top of his hit list. In yet another testament to his popularity, many lied about Cicero's whereabouts or said that they had not seen him, but eventually Cicero was caught attempting to board a ship in vain to escape Italy. Cornered, Cicero accepted his fate bravely, extending his neck and getting one last insult in, mocking his killers by saying, There is nothing proper about what you are doing, soldier, but do try to kill me properly. His hands, head and tongue were cut off and displayed in the middle of Rome for all to see, showing just how much Antony hated him. One story from a Roman historian records Antony's wife taking Cicero's head, cutting out his tongue, and stabbing it repeatedly with a hairpin. 
With Cicero dead, the Republic did not last, and eventually Augustus prevailed, establishing the Roman Empire, not headed by elected representatives, but instead by one almighty emperor. But the name Cicero lived on, and he was still greatly respected, even by his enemies. Years after Cicero's death, Augustus stumbled upon one of his grandsons reading one of Cicero's books. The boy, knowing that Cicero had been an enemy to Augustus, tried his best to hide the work, but Augustus took the book from his hands and read it for a while. He then handed it back to the scared child and said, A learned man, my child, a learned man and a lover of his country. Such was the reputation of Cicero that even those who opposed him saw his brilliance. Later, the Roman writer Quintilian wrote, The name of Cicero has come to be regarded not the name of a man, but of eloquence itself. So, Cicero failed in preserving his beloved republic, but does that mean he was a failure? In my opinion, not by a long shot. There is no saying that victors write history, and while there's some element of truth to this adage, the victors do not always emerge as the heroes respected by observers of the past. Cicero has been admired throughout the ages, and to prove my point, let's just look at one of Cicero's many books, De Officis, or in English, On Duties, a moral treatise written by Cicero toward the end of his life. Early Christian thinkers, such as the church father Augustine, was a huge fan of Cicero, so much so, his detractors would say he is more of a Ciceronian than a Christian. In the medieval ages to today, we have hundreds of handwritten copies of Deo Fikis, a testament to Cicero's popularity as a moral thinker. Also in the medieval ages, Cicero is being quoted by thinkers like Thomas Aquinas, one of the most revered church fathers, and John of Salisbury, who argued in favour of deposing and killing tyrannical rulers, and even Marsilius of Padua, an Italian thinker that put forth one of the earliest writings demanding the separation of church and state. During the Renaissance, Cicero was deemed to be the pinnacle of eloquence, and his style was constantly copied by humanists like Petrarch, who wished to mimic the silver-tongued ways of their favourite Roman. When the Gutenberg printing press was invented, On Duties was the third book ever printed. During the Alignment, Cicero held the sway over a great number of authorities in the field of political philosophy. He was often quoted by esteemed figures such as John Locke, David Hume, Montesquieu, Voltaire, and even Adam Smith. In fact, Smith quoted Cicero so often in his writings but because his works were so commonplace, he rarely ever cited them, as to do so would insult the reader's intelligence, as Cicero was so widely read. Thomas Gordon and John Trenchard, who penned Cato's letters famous for their radicalism, often quoted Cicero, with Gordon even referring to him as the hero of his history. High praise indeed. Just this one example of Cicero's Deo Fiches shows that it was read by so many people throughout the Western world across the centuries that it's no exaggeration to say that his moral philosophy and political thought was massively influential in the history of the Western world. Cicero failed in preserving the Roman Republic, yes, but oddly he won the War of Ideas, with his thought being a prominent strain in Western intellectual life for centuries. Until the 1800s, Cicero's name was a near inescapable occurrence in the field of political philosophy. But what was Cicero writing down in these books that were passed down from generation to generation? The answer is a philosophy that lends itself quite well to liberalism in many ways. Cicero thought of humans as a middle point between gods and beasts. He wrote that, for whereas nature made other animals stoop down to feed, she made man alone erect, encouraging him to gaze at the heavens as a being, so to speak akin to him in his original home. Humans are special because of their power of reason, which allows them to interpret the world, and their power of speech, which allows them to communicate with others. These interrelated qualities allow humans to control their passions and work with others. For Cicero, each person possesses two personas, one of which is universal and one of which is individual. Our universal persona holds our capacities for speech and reason, while the individual is comprised of our talents, tastes, and duties. Since humans possess reason which originates with some form of God, Cicero concludes that every person has a dash of divinity within them. This entitles them to the respect of others, what we loosely term natural rights. 
Cicero's definition of humanity was also meant for people across time and space. He wrote that, However one defines man, the same definition applies to us all. This is sufficient proof that there is no essential difference within mankind. According to Cicero, the world as we know it was created by some sort of divine and intelligent being that ordered the universe according to certain principles. All things are implanted with a function and an end towards which they are directed by the dictates of their own nature. This is called law. To Cicero, law in the proper sense is right reason in harmony with nature. And these laws are not in a constant state of flux, they are permanent. Cicero emphatically stated that there might be one such law in Rome, another in Athens, one now, another in the future, but all peoples at all times be embraced by a single, eternal, unchangeable law. And in this manner, Cicero believed akin to the rest of the world, human law ought to resemble natural law. Justice for Cicero was our greatest virtue as humans, and is not a matter of opinion, but instead a matter of fact, as true law is a right reason in harmony with nature. Cicero expounded four elementary principles of natural law. The first, do not initiate violence without good reason. The second, keep one's promises. The third, respect people's property. And the fourth, be charitable within one's means. On the topic of the state, according to Cicero, the state exists to uphold laws that are in harmony with nature's universal principles. If the state tramples upon people's rights, it is little more than a gang of robbers or bandits. The law and the state are normative in their nature, rather than conventional. He argued that, without the key element of justice embodied in law, a state cannot be formed, observing that, many harmful and pernicious measures are passed in human communities, measures which come no closer to the name of laws than a gang of criminals agreed to make some rules. In his speeches condemning Mark Antony, Cicero even suggested that laws Mark Antony passed held no validity as he enforced them using naked violence, rather than right reason. For Cicero, law is more than just force backed by human authority. It must be right before being given might. What Cicero was articulating was one of the first extensive accounts of natural law being applied to limit the power and scope of the state. Equally as important as his natural law credentials, Cicero was one of the first thinkers to posit the view that the preservation of property rights was one of the core reasons people form states. Cicero believed that God gave the world to humans their own use. However, this does not mean we share everything in common. Thus private property is important and necessary as it allows people to live in peace. Every person is expected to appropriate for themselves and their family what they need to survive. Cicero held the primary reason for people uniting and forming a state was to protect their property, explaining that those who minister public affairs must first of all see that everyone holds on to what is his, and that private men are never deprived of their goods by public acts. Unlike Plato and Aristotle, Cicero did not believe the highest function of the state was the moulding of people's characters. Instead, he said that it was to safeguard people's life, liberty, and property. Sound familiar at all? Cicero believed that not just any old government would do the trick. It had to embody a separation of powers, a system of checks and balances, and presided over by elected officials. This should all sound quite familiar to an American audience, and this is no coincidence. I could spend hours talking about the many authors who Cicero had a great authority of, but for simplicity's sake, I'll limit my listing to two main areas, the thoughts of John Locke, the often dubbed father of liberalism, and the founding fathers of America. In Locke's day, most educated men learned Latin, and to learn the most eloquent Latin, there was no better source than the good old Cicero. And Locke, like many, greatly admired Cicero, but Locke's admiration ran extremely deep. From a young age, Locke was often quoting Cicero in his personal letters, and by the time of Locke's death, he had nine different editions of Deo Fici's in his personal library. Locke even strenuously attempted to establish a coherent chronology of Cicero's life, a project Locke only attempted with one other historical figure, Jesus Christ. In 1693, when Locke wrote some thoughts concerning education, he explained that two books should be given to children to learn proper moral conduct, the Bible and Cicero's Deo Fici's. 
So it comes as no surprise that when Locke wrote his extremely influential two treatises on government, the philosophy of Cicero can be felt at every turn. Both argued natural law was the yardstick by which the state's legitimacy ought to be measured. Both believed private property was the primary reason people formed a state. Both argued in favour of republican systems of government, and lastly, both supported opposing tyrants who had breached the rules of natural law. When Locke published his two treaties on government, the epigraph was, of course, a Cicero quote that read, Salus populi suprema lex esto, or in English, let the welfare of the people be the ultimate law, which some listeners will recognise as the motto of the state of Missouri today. This leads us to the Founding Fathers, who were avid fans of Locke, but many also read and admired Cicero. The curriculum in American schools for many of the founders centred around learning Latin and Greek, and if one wanted to learn Latin, they had to read Cicero and a whole host of other Roman classical authors. By 1776, of the nine colleges in colonial America, all had similar entry requirements, the ability to read Cicero and Virgil in Latin, and the New Testament in Greek. For example, to attend Harvard, John Jay, John Adams, and Alexander Hamilton were required to translate some Cicero. For the first 50 years of the American Republic, nearly every educated American would have had to read some form of Cicero. There was no greater admirer of Cicero than John Adams, who, as a fellow lawyer, saw Cicero as the ultimate role model. Lavishing praise upon Cicero, Adams wrote that all the ages of the world have not produced a greater statesman and philosopher united in the same character. His authority should have great weight. I agree. But Adams was no lone admirer. When drafting the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson was inspired by books that he referred to as the elementary books of public right, and of course, he included the works of Cicero. During the revolutionary period when giving rousing speeches was needed more than ever, many studied Cicero's speeches, who was second to none but the famous Athenian orator Demosthenes. Cicero was admired because he did not just write about politics, but immersed himself wholly in it. Everything he said was backed by his own harsh life experience, meaning that his words carried much more weight than armchair philosophers. Cicero was constantly quoted, evoked, and admired throughout the American Revolution as a genius of oratory, a Republican hero, and most of all, a lover of liberty. I could go on for much, much, much longer because I'm a big loser, but I've already spent much more time talking about Cicero than anyone else I've ever talked about in this podcast. So to summarize, Cicero should be regarded as one of the great philosophical minds alongside Plato and Aristotle for his massive influence upon subsequent generations of thinkers. He tirelessly worked towards establishing a lasting peace under which liberty could flourish. Today's writings are not so widely read. Not many people beyond classical scholars and historians read the great Cicero. But the fact remains that he is one of the finest minds that influence a whole plethora of canonical liberal thinkers. Cicero deserves a place as a part of the liberal canon, as the great predecessor to the Enlightenment ideals that would usher in the modern world. For this reason, he ought to be thought of as the great grandfather of liberalism. For anyone who wants to understand how the US Constitution and the system of checks and balances that continues to protect life and liberty in these trying times was created, I would urge them to read the words and works of the great and possibly original champion of liberty, Cicero. Thanks a for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you may listen to podcasts. Visit the website www.libertarianism.org to find more podcasts like this one. I hope to see you next time.